Thanks for being here this morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's good to have you in person today. It's good to have you with us online today as uh, we are working our way through a series entitled Goodbye Religion. More on that in a minute. Uh, but before we jump into that, just uh, some explanation on my attire. I had somebody tell me, what are you wearing today? Uh, so this is a Team World Vision jersey. Uh, and I'm wearing this because we are partnering here at Faith with Covenant Kids Congo and with another Covenant Church in Livonia for the Team World Vision Global 6K. Uh, this is a, a, a 6K walk or a 6K run. And the registration fee for this, so I'm registered for this. I know some of you all are registered for this. Your registration fee provides clean drinking water for a child in the Congo for life. Uh, they do 6K because that is the average distance that one of those kids walks to get dirty water before they get connected with Covenant Kids Congo. And so if you're not registered yet, we would love to have you if you're able to be part of this event with us. Again, you don't have to run it. You can walk it. When I was a younger man, I used to say to young people, I'd be like, if you can beat me, Abron, I will buy you lunch. I am not a young man anymore. I don't make that offer any longer. I can't afford it, all right? But we'd love to have you come be part of this with us. Um, and, and here's the thing. Like, you probably have a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member who, like, coming to church on Sunday is too much for them. But they'd help kids get clean drinking water. For example, who here is against kids getting clean drinking water in Africa? All right, just, I saw that. You almost bid, Swafford, all right? So, um, it's like, it's an easy thing. And so, it's, it's a great halfway step for your friend who's not ready to come to church to get a little bit closer to that. So let's take a minute, pray for this event, some things going on here at church, our time together, and we'll, we'll get back to our series. Father, um, I just pray that you would bless this event coming up in, in just under three weeks, that you would help us to just be the hands and feet of Jesus to kids and families there in Congo who who don't have access to what we take for granted. Father, I pray that you'd help us to just to leverage this opportunity of compassion to um, help point people to you. Father, we pray that you would have your hands on the Pope family, just as Helen uh, mourns the loss of George. God, please comfort her. Please comfort his son's even though he was hospice and to some degree this was expected, even, even hoped for, uh, it is still loss. God, meet them, please. Father, just as, as we take time just to continue in this series, please open our hearts and our minds to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, we're in the midst of a series entitled Goodbye Religion, and if you're maybe joining us for the first time, you're like, what is that all about? Uh, in this series, uh, we have defined religion this way. When we, when we say religion in a series, what we're talking about is interactions that we have with God that are based on principles that God does not mean for us to interact with him through. And in this series, we've been saying the resurrection of Jesus sets us free from this. So in week one, we talked about how the resurrection, it sets us free from sin and shame. Like this thing where we're, you know, 
where my relationship with God is all about guilt and fear and regret and shame. The resurrection just, just sets me free from that. And last week, Pastor Don Earl talked to us you know, about select people and how the resurrection you know, removes this idea like there's a spiritual in crowd and an out crowd or this idea that I have to go through someone in order to get to God. The resurrection sets me free from that. Now, next weekend, Pastor James is going to be back, and Pastor James is going to be talking to us about this idea that the resurrection sets us free from suffocating lists, this long list of do's and don'ts that I have to flawlessly navigate in order to get close to God. But before we get to that, we're going to spend some time this week on sacred places. And as we begin, I just, I want to do so with a cathartic moment for me and just confess something to you all. And let me warn you before I make this confession, for some of you, uh, upon initially hearing this, you might be like, wow, he's a bad pastor. <laughs> and that might be true, all right? It doesn't have anything to do with the confession, but I'll, I'll run the risk. It's worth the benefit. So here we go. One of the things that I try and do each year is read through my Bible. And before you, you know, you're like, well, you're a pastor. You should read your Bible. I, I know, all right, just let me finish. Quit interrupting, right? So one of the things I try and do each year is read through my entire Bible. But if I'm being honest, and we're at church, I might as well be, there are parts of my Bible I don't like reading. If, thank you, all right. Another <laughs> heathen in the room, all right? There are parts of my Bible that I detest reading. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I am convinced that the Bible is God's word to us. I'm convinced that it is in, his inspired word to us. And while I believe that all of the Bible is equally inspired, I do not find all of it to be equally engaging. All right? There are some parts that I mean, they, just, they capture my mind, they stimulate my intellect, they grab my, my, my emotions. But there are other parts that are just kind of boring. Like, Chapter upon chapter upon chapter of who begat who, right? What these long lists of names of people? I can't even pronounce their names. And I'm reading about what geography, they went from geographic area A to geographic area B, and like what piece of property specifically they inherited when they got to point B, and I'm thinking, I don't care, right? Maybe I should, but I don't. I mean, again, it's all equally inspired. Just for me, some of it is not equally engaging. Now, you're in church, so you might as well be honest. Anybody willing to admit there are parts of the Bible you find boring? Look at that. I'm in the right place. Room full of heathens. Okay, all right. So here's, the, here's the deal. This is relevant because part of what we're going to talk about connects to something I was reading, in, I was reading through Exodus. And Exodus is like, there's a part of Exodus that are just riveting and then there are parts of Exodus, I'm like, Moses, come on, right? Like there's these, in Exodus, you get the architectural details for this building called the tabernacle. It was kind of like a mobile church. So like when the Israelites are still a church plant and they don't have their own building and property yet, they meet in this mobile church called the tabernacle. Well, you get chapter after chapter after chapter of the detailed instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. How big, how wide, how tall, what fabrics, which colors to use, you know, like, like how to make the furniture, where each piece of furniture goes in each room. And just when you slog through all of that, here's how to do it. 
They then tell you that they did it. And rather than just tell you, they made the thing according to the directions that you just suffered through, they then go and give them to you all a second time in equal detail, telling you they did it that way. And I'm like, Moses, you're killing me. And then I keep reading, I get the book of 1 Kings. And they give me equally detailed instructions about the temple. And the crazy thing is the architectural layout of the temple is almost exactly the same thing as a tabernacle. It's just a permanent structure. And then I finally get through that, and I get the book of 2 Chronicles. They talk about the temple being built. And rather than referring me back to 1 Kings, they give it to me all over again. I'm like, this is why people quit reading their Bible, right? Now, here's why this is relevant. Today we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about the, the architectural design of these two buildings. And rather than like subject you to chapter after chapter, I'm not going to read like all this stuff, all right? I'm going to summarize it. And if you're one of these unique people who like, you like reading that stuff, all right? You, you have my permission when you get home today, all right? You can blow off whatever it is your spouse wants you to do and be like, Pastor said I can read the architectural designs of the tabernacle or the temple. Knock yourself out. If you're normal, all right, and that isn't fascinating to you, you can thank me after church for summarizing this, all right? And since that you have the, the temple and the tabernacle and the architectural layout is basically the same, we'll go with just the temple here. So let's, let's, let's bring up, I think we got a model of the temple, and Don Earl kind of walked us through some of this last weekend. So you go up these steps, you get into this, past this first wall, you're in the court of the Gentiles, all right? If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. That's as far as you got as a Gentile. Now, if you are Jewish, you can go beyond that, and, and we've got a picture of the, the temple building proper, so you can get through these gold doors, right, into this next kind of courtyard here. It's known as the court of women. If you're a Jewish woman, that's as far as you get. Now, with the temple building proper, okay, gross oversimplification, there are basically three areas. You've got the, the, the front porch, the vestibule, Jewish men can go there. You have the next room, it's called the holy place. And the Levites and the, and the, the um, priests are in there serving. And then beyond that curtain, Donald talked about the curtain last week, you have this room called the Holy of Holies. And there in the Holy of Holies is a piece of furniture known as the Ark of the Covenant. It's there in the tabernacle, it's there in Solomon's temple before it gets lost and Indiana Jones has to find it, all right? I don't know, it's in your Bible somewhere. Keep reading, all right? So, now this is kind of strange to me, right? But when I read the Old Testament, it tells me that as the Ark of the Covenant is there in the tabernacle, there in Solomon's temple, that above it, there is a visible manifestation of God's presence. For example, um, let's see here. I found my notes. Look at that. You're all lucky. Leviticus, God says to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in a cloud over the atonement cover. Or later on in Numbers, 
When Moses enters into the tent of meeting, which is another name for the tabernacle, to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant Law. Or later on, Hezekiah is praying, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, yet for me, if I'm just being honest, it's kind of strange to me, but I can't escape that passages like these, and these are just a few of them, there's this idea that in that particular building, above that piece of furniture, there is a visible manifestation of God's presence there. Yes, the God of the Old Testament, he is omnipresent. He is all places at all times. There is nowhere you can go to escape his spirit. But God doubled down on his presence in this building. He was there. This was his house. Now, this impacted how the Israelites thought about God, how they worshiped God, how they interacted with God. And, and so, like, for example, if you sinned, you, you did something um, as an individual, you did something as a community, you did something on purpose, you did something on accident, you did something little and made you ceremonially unclean, you did something really big. You know, you know, when you took your sacrifice for sin, this is the place you took it to. Because this is where God was. This was his house. Or in Judaism, you have all these feasts that, that, that celebrate their history as a people, that celebrate their redemption. Arguably the two most important ones, Day of Atonement, Passover. If I'm reading through the Old Testament law and I'm paying attention, if, I'm gonna, if I am going to honor those feasts correctly, I'm going here to the temple because God is present there. This is his house. If I've got a tithe, a free will offering, first fruits that I'm bringing in, that I'm giving to God, I'm taking it to this place because God is visibly manifest there. He's doubled down on his presence there. This is his house. In fact, think about it. The Babylonians come into Israel, right? They, they, they take over, they, they tear the temple down to the ground, and they take the Jews into exile in Babylon. When Daniel's there, and he's praying, what does Daniel do? He follows the instructions that Solomon gave in his prayer when he dedicated the temple. He said to the Israelites, you know, that they, will, that they will pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen, toward the temple I have built. The building isn't even there any longer. And Daniel's praying towards the place where it once was because that was God's house. Now, we'll call this temple model thinking. The, the way the Israelites thought and, and interacted with God in, in the midst of that, it led them to, to, to think certain things about the temple building. Things like this piece of real estate, more sacred than other pieces. 
This building is more holy than other buildings. They would say at the temple, this is the house of the Lord. They would think to themselves, you know, this place is somehow a superior place to find forgiveness and to engage in worship and to express gratitude. Somehow I'm going to get closer to God in this place than I can any other place on the planet. Now, for the Israelites, there were varying degrees of truth when it came to temple model thinking. But what we're trying to wrap our brains around in the series is this idea that the resurrection of Jesus sets us free from this. It sets us free from temple model thinking, free from sacred places, free from religion. It allows us to say goodbye to these things. And yet, temple model thinking can still creep in today. For example, you left, you go back home, right? Someplace where the heat works, and um, your neighbor says to you, hey, where'd you go this morning? What are you going to tell him? I went to church, right? Now stop and think. Why do you call this place church? See, I would contend for Americans all over the country, who are saying, I'm going to get up, I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to go to church today, I'm going to tell my neighbors if they ask, I went to church. That we, that somebody else, we call this place church, and we do so not because of Jesus, but because of history. Let me try and explain. So Jesus is towards the end of his life. He says to his first followers, he says, hey, you know, who, who are people saying that I am? And, and they say to him, you know, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus nails them down. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is forever the spokesman of the group, he jumps up and he says, you're the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And notice, Jesus doesn't try and talk Peter out of that idea. Instead, he says to them, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, here's the deal. This is the very first record we have of Jesus ever using this word church. So just stop and, and think for a minute. T take a step back. Put aside all your presuppositions about what church is. And just think about the context of this passage. First time Jesus ever uses this word that we know of. Is there anything in the context of this passage that would lead me to believe that church is a building? So I would contend there isn't. Jesus says, hey, who do you say I am? And Peter makes a life, worldview-altering declaration. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. There's nothing there. Jesus, no. Jesus says, Peter, on the foundation of this declaration you have made, I am going to build my church. 
what is there there that would lead me to believe in the context that this is a building? Or take linguistics. The word that we have translated as church here, where we have translated as church, is the Greek word ekklesia. Now, in the Greek literature of the time, and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this means gathering. Gathering. It, it does not refer to a place. It does not refer to a building. It refers to a gathering of people. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Jesus says, Peter, on the foundation of this declaration you have made, I am going to build my gathering. And this gathering is going to become a movement so strong that hell itself is not going to be able to stand against it. Again, if linguistically, contextually, there's nothing there to, to identify church as a building, then why do we do that so often? Again, I would contend that has a whole lot more to do with history than it does Jesus. See, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. His gathering is born. This little community of people who are, who are united around the declaration of who Jesus is. And then it spreads like wildfire across the Roman Empire. All over the empire, you get these little gatherings of individuals who are convinced Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. And then Rome declares war on them. Because they've said, our first loyalty goes to Jesus, not to Caesar. And for nearly 300 years, Christianity was illegal. But then Constantine comes. 313 AD, the Emperor Constantine makes Christianity legal. And shortly thereafter, he identifies as a Christian. And, and almost overnight, Christianity goes from being this disease to be eradicated to now being fashionable. And then you watch this evolution take place. You, you had these little informal gatherings of, of individuals united on the declaration, Jesus is Messiah. And over the course of about a decade, they evolved into these large formal worship sessions. It started out all these little, all over the empire, in homes, underground, in the catacombs. These people come together. Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. How are we going to live in light of that? And over a decade, it evolves into these large, formal worship times. The Romans called them the Basilica. It's a Latin word that means meeting place or public meeting house. And then in Germanic culture that was influenced by Christianity, they called it kirka. Everybody say kirka. Yeah, just made you swear in German. No, I didn't. All right, I'm, I don't know where that came from. All right. Actually, that word should sound familiar. It's where we get our word kirch or church from. Literally, it means house of the Lord. See, church isn't a translation of ecclesia. It's a substitution for it. If we were to translate this word literally, we would say 
Jesus said to Peter, on this rock I will build my gathering or my assembly. That's how, that's how Tyndale translated it. And they were so mad at him, they strangled him to death and then burned him at the stake. We substituted Kirka for Ecclesia. And now we think of church that way. But the two are very different. And Ecclesia is a gathering of people united on the declaration, Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. A, a Kirka is the place where they get together. It's the building. And when we tend to, we don't even realize we're doing it, but when church is about a kirka rather than an ecclesia, we begin to, to think and say things about a building like this, like, you know what? This piece of property here, 14 and Drake, it is more sacred than other pieces of property. This building is somehow more holy than other buildings. This is the house of the Lord. Somehow you're going to walk through those front doors and somehow this is a better place to find forgiveness or to engage in worship or to express gratitude. Somehow you're going to be able to get closer to God here than you are any other place. But again, Jesus and the New Testament writers want us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus it changes everything and it does so radically. It allows us to say goodbye to religion. Goodbye to temple model thinking. Because listen, God doesn't live in a building somewhere seated above the ark any longer. With the resurrection of Jesus, his visible manifestation, the visible manifestation of his presence here on earth is found somewhere different. Now, Jesus alludes to where it's found now. He said this to his disciples. He's in the upper room. He says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, the advocate, in the context of John 16, that's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, hey, it's better that I jet. It's better that I leave. Because if I go, I can send God the Spirit to you. And then a little later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul identifies more clearly where the Holy Spirit is sent to us. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. See, this is just one example of how Paul is saying to us, listen, God's spirit no longer resides in a building somewhere above the ark. Instead, it resides in the followers of Jesus. So, let me try and illustrate this. Merciful, you agreed to help me. Come on up. Everybody give Merciful a hand. All right. Right there in the black box, if you would, please, sir. This is really easy. I'm going to hand you stuff. You hold it up so people on the live stream in the room can see it. You got this? Yeah. Of course you do. Right. Hold it up. What's Merciful got there? What kind of container is that? Yeah, come on, old school. Let's hear it. Tupperware. That's right. What, what do you expect to find in, in Tupperware? 
Leftovers, that's right, excellent. All right, thank you, sir. We're gonna trade out. Here we go, hold that one up good and high. What's he got now, what kind of container is that? Garbage can, this is easy, right? I'm waiting for somebody to shout out Jesus because that's always the answer at church, right? What do you expect to find in the garbage can? Garbage, right, all right. All right, a little trickier here. What's he got now? Ooh! And what do you expect to find in there? Is there one in there right now? No, it's right over there, right? There's probably lint and, and, and guitar picks. And I don't know if Matt, he's not in the room. If he keeps a little cash in there, we should check afterwards, right? <laughs> All right, and let me give you the blue one here. All right, what's you got there? And what do we expect to find in there? There, there is a tree hugger somewhere who says there's a special place in hell for people who put garbage in there. Amen. Yeah. Okay. All right. We got one more. How about this one? What kind of container do we have here? That's right. See, according to Paul, merciful is a God container. God doesn't live in a building someplace. God lives right here inside of his followers. Merciful is a God container. This building, this church, this, this is not the house of the Lord here. This is the house of the Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are the house of the Lord. There, there isn't a plot of ground more sacred than the Jesus follower to your right. There isn't a building on the planet more holy than the Jesus follower to your left. God doesn't live in buildings like this anymore. He lives in his followers. All right, thank you, Merciful. Give him a hand. Now, this resurrection truth, it comes with some implications. More than we have time to cover, but we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll get after a couple of them. Right? So, implication number one. Buildings are tools meant to fuel mission. There's nothing wrong with wanting a building, renting a building, building a building, having a building. But the building is a tool meant to fuel the mission Jesus gave us. It is, it is a tool we leverage to help people come into a relationship with Jesus to grow, to become like him, to be empowered to serve him. It's, the tool we, it's a tool we are leveraging that it is fueling the mission. And the minute... Any aspect of this building, be it the aesthetics, the, the, the name of the rooms, the, the way we use the space because we always used it that way, the symbols we put on the inside, the outside, the minute any aspect of this building becomes more important than the mission, we've fallen into the trap of religion. This building is only worth the time, the energy, the money we put into it if it is fueling the mission. Otherwise, it's a waste of space. Which then takes us to implication number two. People take priority. The minute, the, the minute my sense of awe for some structure is greater than my sense of awe for the fact that God lives inside of the Christian next to me, 
I've fallen into the trap of religion. The minute some place is more important than a person, I've fallen into the trap of religion. The, the, minute, the minute I treat some building with greater care than I treat the believer next to me, I've fallen into the trap of religion. And so after church, when some kid comes ripping out of kids' church at 50 miles an hour and running around the corner and out the front door, and, and somebody's tempted to be like, hey, show some respect, slow down. This is a house of the Lord. No, it's not. That kid we're hollering at is meant to be the house of the Lord. Because God doesn't live in buildings. He lives in people. He is still omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. There is nowhere we can go to escape his presence. But when he doubles down on his presence in the world today, it's in his followers. And so people take priority over buildings. So the resurrection of Jesus, it allows us to say goodbye to sacred places. Goodbye to this temple model thinking. And it begs the question, do you not know? Don't you know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He's in you. You've received him from God. Just stand with me, church. Before we continue in worship, as we share communion together, as we give together, as we sing together, Jesus is asking you today, whether you're standing in this room, whether you're watching online, he's asking you today, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And if, if you've never crossed the line of faith where you've decided, you know what, you're Messiah. You're Son of God. If you're yet to have become a God container, as we pray, I want to invite you to pray silently with me if you're ready to do that. Come to Jesus seeking forgiveness, putting your faith in him, inviting the Holy Spirit to take up residence inside you. So let's pray together and we'll worship. Father, thank you that you're not confined to some building on the other side of the planet that the folks here in this room couldn't get beyond the front door of the compound. But you live inside of us. Father, for some of us here today, we sense you asking who you are. And something has finally clicked. We want to say, You're Messiah. You're son of the living God. Jesus, we need you. We need forgiveness. We confess we are broken. We cannot fix this ourselves. We want to put our faith in your life, your death, your resurrection. We want to surrender all of who we are to you. We want to follow you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.